0: Welcome to the Smart Policy Podcast, a production of the University of Tennessee's Institute for Public Service. Every month, we'll give you in-depth interviews with a wide range of experts on substance use disorder and the overdose crisis, so that we can all have a better understanding of how we got here, how the state of Tennessee is fighting back, and what we might expect to see in the future. At the end of 2022, the CDC released new prescription guidelines for opioids, replacing their last set of guidelines from 2016. Excluding patients with cancer and other terminal illnesses, these guidelines strongly emphasize alternatives to opioids and urge extreme caution for physicians considering new opioid prescriptions, while also recommending how to appropriately care for chronic pain patients with long-term opioid treatment. Notably however, is how the new guidelines answer the failures of the 2016 ones. According to the CDC, Many laws, regulations, and policies were, quote, notably inconsistent and have gone well beyond its clinical recommendation, unquote.
1: It became used in some ways to sort of rule practice rather than guiding practice.
0: My guest today is Dr. Clay Jackson, a board-certified pain specialist from West Tennessee. He also serves on the state's Opioid Abatement Council, which is tasked with ensuring the proper distribution of the opioid lawsuit money to programs fighting the overdose crisis.
1: Can we take a step back, Jeremy, and just look at um, the reason that the CDC established their guideline? Uh, We often in in, uh, discussion refer to it as guidelines, but they actually named it a guideline. So uh, maybe they thought of the whole document as one, uh, you know, one guide to rule them all, if we could, uh, (laughs) if we could paraphrase Tolkien. Um, And, and, you know, obviously I'm being facetious there, but uh, that humor may uh, give us an insight into what actually happened. It, It became used um, in some ways uh, to sort of rule practice rather than guiding practice. And I think that probably is the 40,000-foot view that we'd like to to look at. Let's talk about how we got here. In the 1980s, maybe early 1990s, there was a thought in medicine that opioids should be used for basically two patient populations, immediate post-surgical or immediate post-trauma for acute pain I think an ER with someone with a broken limb Mm -hmm. or post-abdominal surgery uh, in the hospital or coming out of a same-day surgery center for a short period of time, think three to seven days. And then there was also this population of patients that I'm very familiar with through my work in palliative care and hospice. I I was a hospice medical director for uh, about a decade and a half. So many patients who are very near the end of life with pain relative to metastatic cancer or end-stage uh, COPD or emphysema, end-stage liver disease. These types of patients might be suffering pain and would require strong pain medication and think opioids in that space for relief. And until the 80s and 90s, it's kind of, okay, that's, that's who needs this, this medication. Then uh, in the late 90s or early aughts, there was the idea that chronic non-malignant pain sufferers, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, perhaps fibromyalgia, chronic low back pain uh, patients might benefit from low-dose sustained release opioids. Now, as you're probably very well aware, and many of our listeners and colleagues today, this was not by accident associated with some pharmacologic advances in the uh, pain management profession and industry of long-acting opioids, which were used. But these drugs, when they became sort of loosed on the non-malignant pain population or the non-end-of-life population, uh, skyrocketed in sales, popularity, and use by uh, physicians and others in the primary care setting. And of course, this is what's known as the opioid epidemic, large-scale use of these opioids, and um, that peaked around 2012. If you look at the early teens in our century, you'll see that that's where per capita The most opioids were prescribed in the United States. It started to fall after that. CDC comes out in in 2016 and says, you know what? Still got too many opioids being prescribed. And they set some guidelines or limits that I think are apropos to our discussion. And basically, the way we we look at morphine power or opioid power is something called daily morphine equivalents or uh, oral morphine equivalents. It's called OMEs. And so this is kind of like, uh, if, if you're familiar with these medications, Percocet may have one power, morphine may have one power, Dilaudid may have one power. And so this is a way of just sort of equalizing or standardizing the opioid power. And they said, you know what, 50 morphine equivalents is, is, is pretty much a yellow light and 90 morphine equivalents is, is a red light. Now, these were based on, they were based on data that above these levels, you start to see some overdose risk go up. And so I I do not criticize the the CDC for in 2016 for setting those elements of concern. Uh, Now, incidentally, in Tennessee, we set those levels of concern higher. We set the sort of yellow light at 90 and the red light at 120. So we were a little more generous in opioids, recognizing that there were many patients that were on high levels of opioids in their their current care. And the CDC set these sort of uh, stop points and, and caution points. At terms of how much you should prescribe for a patient, but the very first line of the CDC guidelines said it was for primary care clinicians, not subspecialists, and it was to exempt cancer pain and hospice and palliative patients—the same three exemptions that we had in Tennessee. I will tell you, Jeremy, that unfortunately, from 2016 up until the new guideline just dropped in 2022, in that six-year period, I don't think. Many people at all took the CDC first sentence seriously, that this mm. is for primary care people treating chronic non-malignant pain. This guideline, and, and and permit me, I'm just going to be very free with my opinion here. And this is Please. my opinion. This guideline became weaponized by third-party payers and to some extent by state and federal regulatory agencies to say: hey, if you are prescribing above 50 or 90 in, in your practice. then you're not doing good practice. Insurance companies refuse to pay for medications without a prior approval uh, if they're above those limits. Even if a patient had been stable for many years. I have to tell you, I do not believe that was the intent of the CDC at the time. Regardless of how you feel about the COVID-19 pandemic and the CDC and the politicization of, of government entities. At that time, I believe that the CDC had good intentions. I will tell you, that there are many of us in the the pain management care space. We had uh, some grave concerns that that the CDC might be overstepping here with a a draconian guideline that might set arbitrary limits on patient care. Subsequently, um, I think that's been shown to be true. What's happened, Jeremy, is that uh, since 2012, prescriptions have decreased across the board in America on the order of, of, You know, 30, 40% depends on which study, which patient population you look at. Actually, I think that's a good thing. I think we were prescribing too many opioids. And when I say we, I just mean the medical community in the United States. I think there were patients who were getting not only too many patients getting opioids, but patients getting it too long and for too much. So I think there was a correction in order. What my concern is, is that I think the guideline, as I said, was was utilized inappropriately by third-party payers and people who were not doing direct patient care to just across the board deny care saying this is above this number. What the CDC has done, and, and listen, I, I, I'm critical of the 2016 guideline and, and particularly how, how it was formed and then how it was used. I'm not critical of the intent, but I will tell you that I applaud the CDC. I'm a huge fan that they came back and revised their guideline and said, guys, uh, we need to do more individualized patient care. The new CDC guideline is basically a 100-page document that says individualized care, individualized care, individualized care, individualized care. It says over and over and over and over, here are are these these principles that you need to incorporate in care, but you need to be very concerned that you don't just say, you know, what's one size fits all and that, you know, above, you know, at 50, you're okay. And at 51, you're not in terms of opioid equivalents. And I think that's exactly the right approach. And so um, I'm very encouraged that the CDC has taken a step. Uh, in the last three years, and again, not to be political, but we've all heard, follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. Well, I will tell you, as, as a, an aspiring member of the scientific community, <laughs> one of the hallmarks of scientists uh, 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 of scientists is uh, is being able to say, I was wrong. We mm-hmm. were wrong. Or, hey, we were mostly right, but here's a few things we need to improve on. Science, by definition, is an incremental approach to attempting to understand truth and recognizing that as humans, particularly in, in controversial topics, we don't have a complete grasp on that at any at any one time. If someone is telling you we know the truth, this is the truth, it's incontrovertible, I would say you're probably not dealing with science as much as you're dealing with scientism, which is actually the religious or political worship of the concept of the enlightenment that humans can understand anything at all times just given enough power and enough data. Um, I disagree with that philosophically. I disagree with it existentially. And so I think incremental improvements and admitting when we're wrong is incredibly valuable. Let me give you an example of how we were wrong in Tennessee. In 2012, when we convened the chronic pain guidelines, we were looking at continued growth in overdose deaths in Tennessee. And we saw that it tracked pound for pound, if you will, both curves Of overdose deaths and opioid prescriptions we're tracking. Now, your entry-level high school statistics teacher will tell you correlation is not causality. Just because two things track together doesn't mean they're causing each other. There are many confounding factors. We all knew that sitting around the room, but just practically we thought if we lower prescriptions, we will lower overdose deaths. It may take a few years, but we'll sort of I'm using air quotes here for those of you are listening, flush out the system of high opioid prescriptions and we'll see opioid deaths come down. Jeremy, in all sincerity and with a deep and abiding sadness, I have to report to you that we were absolutely wrong. We weren't wrong to lower prescriptions. And I will tell you that we um, wanted to do it judiciously. We, Our goal was to have high single digit or low double digit reductions in opioid prescriptions year upon year, eight to 12%, you know, and, and, and I'm using those as example numbers. We didn't set it as a hard goal, but you know, so why didn't you want a hundred percent reduction in one year or 50% reduction? Because we didn't want to leave patients hanging. If they had been on four Percocets a day and you say, that's it, that's all you get, no more. We didn't want patients to be opioid refugees right. roaming around the state, looking for someone to treat them or worse going to, um, take illicit substances. Because they were seeking to avoid withdrawal. Of course, this is exactly what happened. We did see a lot of that, Jeremy, unfortunately. And what no one on our committee could have anticipated is that there would be an exponential growth in the use of illicit substances in the United States. Heroin came back with a vengeance. We think of it as a 20th century drug, but it made a 20th, 21st century comeback uh, through established channels of uh, international cartels. And then uh, that's about uh, in you know, 2013, 14, we start to see those deaths rise with heroin. And then in 2016, 17 or so, we see the fentanyl epidemic explode. Mm. Now, this is not the fentanyl patches or the IV fentanyl that are used. Fentanyl patches are used for chronic pain, Uh, FDA approved product, very safe when used as directed. IV fentanyl, very safe in the hospital setting when used uh, mostly by anesthesia staff, sometimes by ER staff. But, you know, This illicit fentanyl that we see, these were chemically altered compounds that mostly originated out of China, many times by legal pharmaceutical companies above ground, you know, brick and mortar, glass and steel buildings that were constructing these molecules. And they change a nitrogen here, they change a CO2 atom there, and just make it slightly different from a, a drug that was on patent. And many of these fentanyl analogs, as we call them, were much, much more powerful. Fentanyl itself is about mm. 100 times more powerful than morphine. So it's already a, a, quite a powerful compound. Now we see these fentanyl analogs, which are sometimes used in veterinary medicine. You know, think elephants and rhinos, you know, extremely powerful medications. Um, and, and to call the medications is, is charitable. These are, these are actually <laughs> they're just the they're drugs. And um, it, it, it really overwhelmed our interdiction system. China was willing, uh, some of, the, some of the, the, the players here in China were willing to ship it to your door through the dark web, and a, a brick-sized amount of this altered fentanyl could be enough to sell illicit substances to an entire block of people for six months. Uh, it was um, incredibly difficult for our law enforcement officials to prevent this material from coming in in, in usable quantities uh, just because of the size factor. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're trafficking cocaine, there's a physical problem. There's a space problem. You can take a small amount of fentanyl and, and, and hide it in a vehicle crossing the border. And, um, you know, again, it, incredibly profitable for these illicit manufacturers, incredibly profitable for illicit traffickers, uh, incredibly addictive medication uh, or, or, or substances for those who have substance use disorder and lethal because a tiny amount. Can kill a person. When you when you clean out a, an area where there's a fentanyl press, where they're making fake pills, um, it requires hazmat. Uh, it takes sixty to seventy thousand dollars to do a cleanup job because a few grains of this fentanyl can kill you. So, in the old days, you know, there's experimentation with drugs. People people use. You know, it, it's common in high school and college for people to experiment. Uh, I, I, I'm not here to justify or or argue for or against legalization of marijuana, et cetera. But certainly, marijuana use. Uh, has, has become pop, even more popular than it used to be. There are those who experiment with drugs. And in the old days, you know, if you take one of somebody else's Percocet, that's dangerous, it's illegal. But you know, the level of danger with fentanyl is so much higher because you don't know what you're getting. And so these illicit uh, traffickers, now they, they make pills that look like a Percocet, an oxycodone, a, a legitimate medical uh, pill or tablet but it's cut with fentanyl and these, these drugs are manufactured in salad mixers and there's no quantification of them. The manufacturing process by these cartels is, is without quality control. Um, You're you're talking kitchen mixers and and vats of of drugs that are then dried and pressed. And um, so it's so, so dangerous. I do not mean to minimize the dangers of, of casual drug use or illicit drug use before, but now you have a molecule that is 100 to 1,000 times more potent. And so literally one dose at a party can kill a person. And it's not just, okay, well, I'm going to take opioids. Fentanyl is now used to cut a lot of other substances, such as cocaine. It's it's used to pack a power punch for marijuana. Uh, there are many other drugs, uh, methamphetamines.
0: Yeah, that's the big f- one.
1: Yeah, where, where fentanyl is being laced. And so If you you look at toxicology reports from Tennesseans that are dying from overdoses, people rarely overdose and die from one substance now. It's often a a mix or a recipe that's found in their bloodstream after an overdose. Uh, And they may have only taken one pill or one tablet or a handful out of one bowl at, at a party or something, but it had a lot of different substances in it because what they were sold is not what they thought they were getting. And so harm reduction becomes important. But you know what? I actually think, Jeremy, we're going to go back to the 80s. I think we're going to wheel out Nancy Reagan's uh, campaign again and just say no. Abstinence education is going to be important for youth because whereas in in 1980, if someone took a drug, yes, they're headed down a dangerous path, but they probably live to choose that path or not choose that path. 2022, you're a high school senior and you decide after the prom that you're going to take you know something out of the so-called skittles bowl you know with the different color pills that everybody's contributed you may die that night so it's yeah. a real it's a real paradox because the the politicization politicization of these topics has trended more toward individual freedom and less toward societal control and yet pharmacologically the risk of that freedom are much much higher uh, unless you're buying obviously from a, a legalized
0: dispensary or a uh, yeah, you the, know, a,
1: a, some type of of regulated program.
0: The necessity of regulation is definitely a a, a big part of this. That's one of the reasons why I'm um, worried about the lack of regulation in the delta eight market because with, with these aerosol uh, vape pens, where. Uh, seeing a lot of heavy metals, silicon, things like that showing up. And then, I mean, who, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's plausible that, that Delta, um, that, excuse me, that fentanyl could be found in some of these as well. Oh, uh, yes.
1: I, I, oh, yes. When, when we're talking about um, synthetic cannabinoids or, or so-called, you know, marijuana-like products that hit the mm. THC receptor in the body or the CBD receptor in the body, the, what we call the endocannabinoid system, you know, you have plant products that are basically put out and dried and then manufacturers may spray stuff over them to yeah. give it an extra kick, and that spray may include fentanyl. So again, if, if if there's not regulation of these products, I mean, it, can I just say it this way? If you're buying something from a gas station and putting it in your body as a, a so-called medicinal product, buyer beware. You know, a, a lot of these a lot of these products are um, you know they're they're technically legal because one molecule's been changed. But you just don't have an idea of what's in it. And so, um, you know, our old friend, the FDA may turn out to be may turn out to be a safe harbor that, you know, if you're taking something that's FDA regulated, at least you know what's in it. And, And again, we there's controversy about how drugs get approved and how they don't get approved and biases and potential conflicts of interest. But at
0: least there's some idea of what you're taking. True. Uh, But unfortunately, we also have to uh, deal with the reality that the FDA was a contributor to prescription misuse uh, with the expedited approval of produced products.
1: Well, I think think that's one way to look at it. Um, I I think that the FDA saw an unmet need. Now Mm -hmm. we can talk about biases and et cetera. And again, this gets to what were the intentions and then what was the outcome? I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily fault the FDA for approval. I think that the data that was brought to the FDA was was highly selective. I think the company and, and multiple companies didn't take seriously some of the outcomes that they were seeing. The sales tactics after the drug was on the market, we have to take a hard look at where people were, were potentially minimizing the adverse events and they were accentuating the positive uh, events. And then ultimately, you know, you also have to look at prescribers. You know, we, we as prescribers, just because something's approved doesn't mean it's for every patient. And so if we're looking to point the finger at the, the opioid problem, well, uh, what about patients? Uh, what did they ask for? What were their tactics of asking for it? What about prescribers? What about, you know, what about manufacturers that were shipping loads of drugs into one town uh, and per capita, the, the, the use was very, very high but people were making a profit. And so a lot of questions weren't asked. Uh, So there's, you know, there's regulatory questions to be asked. There's prescriptive questions to be asked. There's, there's patient questions to be asked There's sales practice questions to be asked. I I think this is something that we can, we can learn from, you know, but uh, not the first time this has happened in America. Uh, Remember that cocaine and, and morphine were being sold over the counter uh, in mm. the late 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 1800s and early 1900s, and heroin
0: and cough syrup, yeah,
1: yes, heroin was in cough syrup. Remember that the reason the reason that a proactive FDA actually exists is because an Eastern Tennessee pharmacy company produced a cough syrup that had basically antifreeze in it. Company sold a lot of this, and a lot of children died in this country from renal failure. Uh, so that's, you know, that happened in the 1930s. Look it up. They also saved us from thalidomide. There you have it. There's a lot of blame to go around. I'd like to flip that Jeremy and say, there's a lot of learning to go around. Mm. And the more honest conversations that we have like this as society about how we approach the treatment of complex problems, the better off we'll be because it's not the last time we'll face this where something that has therapeutic potential may be abused. I, for one, don't want to see marketing at a strip mall be yeah. what the public has to rely upon. I, I want sound scientific voices. I want public consensus. I want, uh, um, you know, reasoned debate to, to, to guide the way society approaches some of these newer products. And so, you know, we can spend a lot of time in the review mirror about the opioid epidemic. But if we're going to do that, I'm more interested in learning and I am in blame. Because uh, mm. meanwhile, while we're looking in the review mirror, there's some things that are coming up on our windshield pretty fast, and those are two of the products that I would mention: ketamine and and um, the psychedelic substances that um, you know are being used across the country right now, yeah. and um, they have
0: tremendous promise, but they also have uh, some serious concerns. So coming back to around the 2022 guidelines, uh, like you said, individual—the word "individual" and individualized care—appears more than two dozen times. Uh, there is a huge emphasis on non-opioid treatment as the preferred safe uh, route to start with. And in fact, I think one of the things they say, let's see here. Um, so here are some of the conditions that they found that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, so your naproxens, your ibuprofens, et cetera, were the same or better for, uh, than opioids for um, pretty much most Common acute pain conditions, and this includes low back pain, neck pain, uh, other musculoskeletal injuries, sprains, strains, tendonitis, bursitis, pains related to minor surgeries, you know, dental extractions. But in general, also dental pain, kidney stone pain, headaches, and this includes episodic migraine. Uh, that's that's a long list. That is an extraordinary long list of things that uh, NSAIDs have outperformed opioids on. Um, I was wondering what what do you think about that in terms of its impact with these recommendations. <laughs> Individualized
1: patient care. Uh, you just gave a long list of where NSAIDs may uh, have non-inferiority or even superiority in some clinical conditions. Let me give you a long list of patients who can't take NSAIDs, uh-huh. chronic, chronic kidney disease patients, patients with a history of gastric ulcers, or bleeding uh, patients who are on other blood thinners uh, with a history of stroke, et cetera. So we have a number of patients that we cannot use NSAIDs for, and typically we use opioids for those patients. And so, yes, you need a panoply of, pharma, uh, uh, of pharmaceutical agents. You need a pharmacopoeia. You need a variety of classes that you can treat um, that are analgesic classes. But, you know, some patients can't tolerate opioids and some patients can't tolerate NSAIDs. You know, when all you got is a hammer, the whole world's a nail. We need a vice grip. We need a channel lock. We need a screwdriver. You know, we do lots of different tools to help patients. Let's back up a minute and let's just forget pills. How about massage for low back pain? Does your insurance company pay for that? Probably not. <laughs> what's, what's your it, this is a fight that we fought vociferously in the teens as the Academy of Integrative Pain Management. And oh, by the way, we lost uh, big time uh, because insurance companies said acupuncture is a new and investigative treatment. Now, it's been out for 5,000 years, but I suppose yeah. <laughs> that it, you know, new, new and investigational. So CMS came out, or, you know, the three initials that runs Medicare, came out with a guideline on, on chronic pain. And some of the the CAM, the complementary and alternative therapies that were useful, and uh, so there's you know there's a very detailed set of data around this, and so insurance benefit managers really have no excuse for denying payment for these uh, interventions except it's just expensive. Pills, once they go off patent, are dirt cheap. We can manufacture millions of pills for pennies on the dollar. A therapy where a human has to touch or intervene with another human like massage therapy, acupuncture surgery, et cetera, et cetera, much more expensive. And so we find that uh, there's a bias against these non-pharmacologic interventions. Now that bias is not entirely monetary. It's not entirely monetary because insurance companies will pay for a ton, a ton of epidural blocks, uh, lumbar injections, you know, so-called procedures Now, these cost thousands of dollars. Whereas drugs cost, you know, hundreds of dollars, tens of dollars uh, per, per month of therapy. You can get a lot of massages for what you can get one epidural block from. And people criticize the data on opioids, but let's look at the data, the long-term data on injections for low back pain. Not that great. So what we see is there's, there tends to be a bias in third-party payers toward uh, pills rather than high-touch uh, procedures. And then there's a bias of allopathic procedures over, uh, complementary procedures. So, you know, injections and surgery over massage or acupuncture, et cetera. And Hey, acupuncture doesn't work for everything. Surgery doesn't work for everything. You know, let's look at everything based on evidence. Can we just leave our biases at the door and look at whether it works? Let's do quality of life surveys. Let's do pain intensity scores. Let's do functionality scores and let's see, and let's just make the comparisons. And if it turns out you need to put, you know, uh, metal studs in people's ears and, uh, you know, therapy. If, if you need to do injections, if you need to prescribe opioids, if it's NSAIDs, you know, let's compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges, and let's get a fruit basket of things at work. But I think as we continue that search for better chemistry, let's return to a search for, for better humanity. Let's return to a search for a better understanding with people. Kafka, uh, in his book, The Country Doctor, He's got a scene of a, of a parish priest who's folding his vestments in an empty church, and there's a line outside the, the country doctor's practice. And Kafka's telling line is, to write prescriptions is easy. To come to an understanding with people is hard. And I think that one line encapsulates what the opioid epidemic is really all about. These are complex problems. They're chronic problems. They start before kindergarten with adverse childhood experiences, as you well know that set people up for inflammatory diseases and set them up for chronic pain and set them up for mental health issues. And lo and behold, when you take simple solutions and try to push them into spaces of complex problems, garbage in, garbage out, it doesn't work well. I think we will recover from the opioid epidemic. What the, the next challenges of medicine will look like, you know, how we'll negotiate it. You know, I can't give you those technical answers. But I will tell you, if commercialism absolutely drives practice, or if regulation absolutely drives practice, we'll fail. If paternalism is all that we have, or if individual consumerism and patient autonomy is all that we have, we'll fail. But if we will take a judicious approach, recognizing that we're all limited people and none of us has all the answers. Over time, I do have hope that we will correct. I will say that as Americans, we tend to do a great job of pushing the pendulum way over here and then way over there, and it, it takes us a long time. But um, I'm, I'm hoping for a centrist medical practice that takes seriously patient experiences, that takes seriously pharmacologic advances, and takes seriously clinician uh, judgment uh, to, to push people toward a better outcome and, and lead them to a better and preferred future.
0: For more episodes on in-depth discussions on Tennessee policies related to substance use disorder by a range of local experts, please subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts and visit our website at smart.tennessee.edu. I'm Jeremy Corvillis. Thank you for listening. and See you next month.